It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule through the kingdom, with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. Satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. So these chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, making Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, Your Majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to the palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At first light at dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. 
king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded the men who had falsely accused Daniel brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, the things we do in this world matter. May the decisions we make, the habits we form, shake empires and rattle kings like Daniel did. May your spirit shape our lives too, for Christ's sake. Amen. So Daniel and the lion's den, it's a classic. It's not really for kids, quite frankly. It should have an MA plus rating. It's not quite the joker, but it's still bad. The lion's den, of course, was not a metaphor for Daniel. It was very real for him, as it is for those persecuted Christians around the world. And I pray, may God give me strength if ever I have to face the same sword. But it could be a metaphor for many of us, uh, a metaphor for places of fear, for difficult situations where it's dark and there seems to be no way out maybe the threat of death itself. It really is an awful story. (laughs) Uh, The jealousy of the work friends, the vanity of the boss, the unintended consequences resulting in persecution and death. Verse 24 is horrible. The wives and the children, before they had reached the floor of the den, the the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones, the blood on the floor. It's so unjust. And yet it really was Darius's vanity that caused the law to happen, verse 8. He issued the decree, he put it in writing, in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which is a thing. The law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And yet it's also, it's a good news story. It's the story of the disrupting power of fidelity to God and of the habit of prayer and of integrity. It's not a hero story. Daniel just does the same thing the day his life was threatened as he did the day before. He prays. He did it before it became illegal and he did it the day after it became illegal. In other words, he didn't buckle to fear And guess what? It turns out that the law of the Medes and the Persians can be changed. It can be repealed. Because Daniel's decision disrupts the culture of a nation. You know that from verse 26, because after the the day Daniel is lifted from the lions, that day the king breaks the previous law of the Medes and the Persians and says, basically, you can honour God. It turns out that faithfulness to the gospel can shape nations and rattle kings. 
and in fact break the apparent unbreakable, like Jesus did with death. Welcome to the book of Daniel. Uh, Welcome to living well in the light of the promise of Christ's kingdom come. I believe God gave us these ancient stories to show us a power that's higher than the ones we tend to fear and a power deeper than the ones we tend to admire and run after. He gave us these stories to work out how to live Mondays in Babylon. And one answer is just remain standing. Just keep praying. Don't get bumped off. Don't bow down. Follow Jesus today. And then don't let any despot culture uh, person or ideology throw you off the course. Uh, Follow Jesus tomorrow like he did yesterday, one foot in front of the other, which is often the message of the persecuted church. Bear in mind the structure of Daniel on the bottom of page 11. Daniel 6 corresponds to chapter 3. In Daniel 3, you've got a fiery furnace. In Daniel 6, you've got a lion's den. They're both places of persecution. Daniel keeps praying in chapter 6. Daniel's friends refuse to bow down. In chapter 3, two simple acts of faith and integrity in the face of fear. So three areas of reflection uh, this morning. I'm going to talk about this den, take you through the story. I want to talk about our dens. I'm going to apply the passage to ourselves, Daniel and your lion's dens. And lastly, I want to talk briefly about the ultimate den. I want to talk about Jesus, which is good news. Firstly, this den. The Apostle Peter, who followed Jesus, writes in 1 Peter 2.12, he writes, Live such lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, you can see where this is going, they may witness the things you do and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let's let the Apostle Peter guide the three sort of people involved in this chapter. First, there's Daniel. Let's talk about Daniel. Verses 1 to 5. Living such a life among the Babylonians. Daniel's not just just a man of integrity, sort of a guy with Christian values, as though any values would count. He has a relationship with the living God. He relates to God. He prays to God, asking for help and mercy. He also works hard in Babylon, even though no doubt he would have experienced racism. He's a Jew, after all, forced out of his homeland and is now living in what is now Iraq, which was then ruled by Iranians. But verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, some of us feel like the horse has bolted on the exceptional qualities. Uh, But, you know, wow... um, He's living such a life that it evokes jealousy in his co-workers. Now, we'll get to that. Look at verse 4b. Wouldn't it be great if this was said about you and me? They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. In other words, he tended to the affairs. He didn't forget things. He was incorruptible. You couldn't bend him and trustworthy. You could trust him. Um, 
living such a life that though they accuse you of doing wrong, let's look be at the accusers. The accusers tried to find something grubby in his conduct at work, but they could not. So in verse 5, exhaustingly, these men say, well, we're never going to find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? You know, we're not going to, we can't pin him on anything. So we're going to pin him on the comment about you tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You tear it down and I'll build it in three days. We'll get him on terrorism charges, the threat of buildings being torn down. We'll get him there, the law of his God. They couldn't find another way to do it. Same with Daniel, Daniel you see. So they devise a plan, a cunning plan. It's an awful plan. Verse 6, they went as a group. Why is it always a group? And said, we've all agreed. <laughs> a little, we moved the motion and everything. Someone seconded it. Um, you know, it was not much debate because we all agreed that the king should issue an edict, a law, that anyone who prays to any God or human being, anybody who reaches out in their hearts and their words for help from someone else during the next month, except to you, your majesty, should be thrown into the lion's den well, that, well, where they'll die. It is, of course, entrapment. And it's an appeal to vanity. The king's a despot, and he has the power to make such a captain's call, and so he does. Seems like he needed a functioning board, as far as I can tell. Maybe he had it, maybe the board just voted with him, you know. <laughs> maybe it's a bad board. Now, remember, Daniel's not a hero, not in the classic sense of right reaching over the hill and getting the lady and bringing him home and living happily ever after. That's not Daniel. He's just a person who prays, like you pray. And he prays towards Jerusalem uh, because he's a Jew who's read his Bible and he reads his Bible and does what the Bible says. Uh, a Jew believed in the Old Testament that the hope would come from Jerusalem. We believe the same thing because we believe in Jesus. Our hope has come from Jerusalem. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 38, 400 years before this event, Solomon, King Solomon, anticipates the sin and Jews landing in the land of captivity for their sin. And Solomon prays uh, this. He says, If they turn back to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of captivity where they were taken, and if they pray towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards Jerusalem, then from heaven hear their prayer, O God, forgive them, is what uh, Solomon said. So Daniel knows this, he believes the Bible, and uh, he, he then goes to his upstairs room and opens the window and prays towards Jerusalem. But now that the edict has come, he's got a brand new choice. To pray or not to pray. Upper room or lower room. To shut the windows or to leave them open. I first read this story when I was like eight years old in some cartoon book. I'm like, just close the windows. I was more practical then than I am now. What does Daniel do when he learned the decree? Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned the decree that had been, that had been published, 
he went to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, which is his pattern three times a day on his knees, praying, giving thanks to God. And he did it just as he'd done the day before. The day before, it was prayer. The next day, it's civil disobedience. Live such lives, Daniel, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, thirdly, uh, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Let's talk about Darius. The bureaucrats go to the king, verse 12, and they tell the truth about Daniel, but they put a spin on it. So interesting. Verse 13, they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, fascinating, isn't it, that they knew it would work? Like they were absolutely sure it would work. Don't you think that's interesting? They knew it would work. They knew it would work. They go to the king, verse 13, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. That's a spin, isn't it? I mean, it's not like Daniel's like, just paying no attention to him. He's just doing the thing he did before. It's a spin. It's true, but it's a spin. Or the decree that you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. Now, Darius is a fool, but he's also stuck, which makes him a double fool. Uh, this, of course, is the unintended consequence of his vanity because he likes Daniel. How's he going to get out of this? And he scrambles all, you know, to work out ways in which the government could do something about it. But he says that the law of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. But really, they can. I mean, really, they can. I remember reading this as a child. I'm thinking, ooh, the law of the Medes and the Persians must be some sort of deeper magic. You know, it's not deeper magic. The guy's a despot. He can do what he wants. But like all despots, he's wobbly on his feet. Daniel, much stronger. He's afraid of being seen to be weak or of flip-flopping. The king expresses some hope in verse 20. Maybe your God will rescue you. Implication, I can't. You know, I can't just change the law. <laughs> so Daniel then is placed down into the lion's den, into the dark, into the cold, into the danger. Daniel chose death. Darius, by the way, is not an easy character to identify uh, in history. Chapter 5, verse 31 says he was 62 when he became king. Uh, he was the king of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, Babylon rolled over. You can see that in the histo map, Rand McNally, I've circled the spot of Darius, where the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, their empire fades away. Such is the nature of kingdoms which rise and fall. One of the messages of the book of Daniel is patently obvious that that's true through the histo map uh, and through history, but it's also not patently obvious that God is the one who makes kingdoms rise and fall, but he's Persian, he's an Iranian, but the key is he's a despot, like Caligula, I don't care if they respect me, as long as they fear me. But take a look at Daniel chapter 6 verse 25 for a moment, Daniel's choice causes this reaction, this traction from the king, King Darius wrote to the nations and peoples of every language on all the earth, a letter, a memo, if he was here today, it'd be, it'd be an Instagram post, it'd be at real Darius, and uh, he would have said these words, or maybe, maybe he would have produced an album called Jesus is King. But Darius wrote, I issue a decree in every part of my kingdom uh, that people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, new law. Of course, it's ugly because it's enforced. I mean, he hadn't really learned his lesson. Uh, but the reason is uh, for 
God is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. May your kingdom come. And he rescues and he saves and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And he rescued Daniel from the power of death, from the power of the lions. Now, we don't know if Darius became a Christian. We don't know if he prayed the prayer and got baptized the following Sunday. What we do know is that Daniel's behavior disrupted the moment. Daniel's life causes traction with others. He so lived that people hated him. Not because it was annoying, but because he wouldn't bend. His behavior stood as a, a light in a dark Sydney in a dark city. And as they often say, people who love darkness, Jesus said it, can't stand the light. So thirdly, uh, let's look at our, secondly, let's look at our dens. There's no doubt that this den is a place of persecution and in death, and we here live in Australia where the state does not uh, persecute, uh, certainly not with death or lion's dens. Um, not currently, you might say. <laughs> we have checks and balances. Freedom of religion is a thing. You can actually talk about it. It's under review. Separation of powers, uh, freedom of assembly. No one here thinks that the cops are going to walk in uh, through these doors. Is that true? But our dens are real, uh, not like Daniel's den, but they're real nonetheless. Pressure applied to bow to the gods of the age, fears that make us buckle, the threat of embarrassment that would make us close that window. Unjust people can rally around and together decide to bully us and then throw us, we say, under the bus. You might say the dens of someone else's making. Interesting, by the way, someone made that den back then. Someone kept those lions. Someone made crosses. We all can be the recipients of other people's ill will. We still live in Babylon. So three quick thoughts. First, Daniel so distinguished himself that the only way to get him was to attack him at his point of integrity. And to have people know that that was the, that you do it, that you keep doing it. Now, I know some of us feel like the horse has bolted, but that's what the forgiveness of God is all about and the Spirit of God making all things new. What will you, you do tomorrow morning in Babylon when you're faced with complexity, racism, bullying, pressure? Wouldn't it be great if this were said of you and me, so distinguished himself by authentic, diligent, faithful obedience to God in the workplace. That's how they got Jesus. Secondly, keep facing Jerusalem. I don't mean the real Jerusalem. We're not, we're not Zionists here. I mean, some, some of you might be, but I'm, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. Uh, our new Jerusalem, our hope did indeed come from Jerusalem as Jesus went to the cross in Jerusalem. And so we face Jesus Christ. Keep facing Jesus Christ and keep praying. See, what does Daniel do in the chapter when he hears the decree? What does he do in the crisis? He's got that lovely non-anxious presence. He doesn't scramble to save his life. He just does the thing that he was doing the day before. He just keeps praying. And it's this habit of three times a day that sustains him in the crisis. What do we learn? I think we need to learn and relearn the spiritual disciplines of praying regularly, of reading our Bible, of going to church, of fellowshipping with believers each Sunday, grace before meals, 
giving regularly, none of this to earn God's favour. Oh no, you can't do that, it's impossible. It's not simply out of duty, uh, no point in that really. It's not just because it's the mature thing to do, although it is, but rather because repeated activity can shape character. The spiritual disciplines can give your soul some depth, and in a crisis, that depth might carry you through. Stephen Covey tells young people, we become what we repeatedly do, and Daniel is the perfect example. And by getting into habit, it's not just sort of like the things you learn cognitively that shape lives. I often come out of church and think, oh, what was that about? What did I learn there? And, you know, I'm usually the one speaking. It's actually the habit, that's supposed to be a joke. It's the habit of doing. Um, as a teen, I was asked to go to church uh, in the mornings, uh, but I chose to go also in the evenings by choice, uh, in part so I could have the car to myself and listen to Casey Kasem's Top 40 Countdown while my dad talked and talked and talked. I loved going to church, though. I loved hearing my dad sing. He had hope. But it was the same sermon, you know, boring sermon, like the one you're hearing, you know, um, same prayers, same songs. Uh, I'm not sure what I learned cognitively in those years, but the activity of going regularly did really shape my heart. Third, silence is one option, not the only one, but from time to time. Uh, if you want to get traction in Mondays in Babylon, uh, you know, you could wear the T-shirts, you could email, bomb your friends, uh, retweet, share on Facebook memes, you could placard the streets, lobby governments, say outrageous things to get a response. All of those things are legitimate, I think, in their time, all possible. But I find it fascinating that Daniel speaks only once in this entire chapter. After the first light of a sort of resurrection lifted out of the, the, the tomb, Darius, by the way, has not slept. I take it that Daniel has had a better night's sleep. Darius turns up wondering if all the broken, the bones are broken and there's blood on the floor. Has God, your God rescued you? And Daniel speaks for the first time, verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Sounds like Jesus. Nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. By the way, Daniel chapter 3 tells you that even if God didn't rescue him, we will not stop praying. And that's because Daniel, in the end, believes in a resurrection. I'll come to that in a moment. Daniel chose silence when accused, but he preached the gospel when asked to give an account for the hope that he had. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel. You see where this is going? Out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. Let's then talk about the ultimate den. Let's talk about Jesus. In the end, Daniel knew that God's kingdom outlasts the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of this world. He knew to pray the prayer of Jesus, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he chose death in this world, and he knew that was only possible if God has his life in his hand, if God has this life in his hand, let alone the next one, if God can rescue me from the grave. In chapter 12 of Daniel, Daniel will be an extraordinary revelation about resurrection. Because in the end, the real den is not the den of lions or even of the sword. That's not the real den. 
The real den is death itself, and Jesus is the ultimate Jew in the midst of the evil. Death is the ultimate den, and the ultimate resurrection is Christ's resurrection. Jesus is the true and better Daniel who disrupted a death culture. It turns out that death itself, like the law of the Medes and the Persians, it can be changed. Death can be repealed. And so given the fact that we are believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how do you do Mondays in Babylon? Well, know this, we have one who went to that den, the den of death, Jesus, our King. He faced his own Darius, Pilate, who feared the crowd and couldn't sleep. Jesus was thrown into the tomb, just like Daniel, but unlike Daniel, Jesus did die. The lion of death ate him up. There was blood on the floor. But like Daniel, God rescued him. He came up alive out of that tomb. This is our gospel. The story that shapes lives and disrupts culture. The story that gives you courage when God's Spirit awakens it within you. When you have it in your bloodstream, when when your habits are gospel-soaked, we'll find that the decisions that we make and the habits we form will in some way shake empires and rattle kings. But first, there's tomorrow morning in Babylon. Apostle Peter says, live such lives, good lives, among the work colleagues that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your activity, your choices, your life, and glorify God on the day He visits us.